So from 7 to 7.30, we're going to be shifting gear completely again to a different place because we're going to be moving on to talk about faith, communications, and primary progressive aphasia. Um, which is uh, my brilliant guest. We've got Professor Cindy Weinstein, who's at Caltech. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it is. Uh, and we have Dr. Anna Volkler, yeah. who's from University College London, who... Um, have you ever seen that scene from The Italian Job when um, he walks around the chairs and introduces people and he puts his end on the back of chairs and says, Camp Freddy, you all know. I've just watched The Italian Job too much. It's the mini thing. But I, I feel like that when I introduce Anna. Anna, you all know. Um, <laughs> And then we have Dr. Catherine Carroll Britt, or Cat, uh, uh, Cat Britt, who is joining us all the way from another USA. So we've got two guests from the USA this time, uh, who's coming up as a postdoc research fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. Hi, thank you very much. Anna, Hi. would you mind very carefully, would you mind just doing a round of introductions for me and just ask, initially talk about the research while I just very quickly rush out and back again? Of course, not a problem. Thank you ever so much. That's really kind of you. And and yourself, of course, as well. Do talk, introduce yourself. I might do that. <laughs> okay. So usually when I host podcasts um, with Adam, we start with a round of introductions and we talk about who we are, what our research interests are. Um, and I might just start off by mentioning who I am, although I'm a frequent, uh, as Adam said, I'm I'm a frequent flyer in uh, the better with the better um, researcher, dementia researcher, podcast and blogger, blogging scene. And um, so my name is Anna. I'm a clinical speech and language therapist by background, but I'm also a, an advanced fellow in NIHR um advanced fellow so senior researcher at ucl in london my particular interest and work that i do is in the area of primary progressive aphasia and and dementia communication in dementia more broadly um so for the listeners and we can come back to this in a minute but for listeners who aren't aware um primary progressive aphasia is a type of a rarer type of dementia where language is the primary or leading issue for people um, as the disease develops. And I'm particularly interested in um, and do work in developing interventions to help people and their family members um, who are having to live and have conversations and, and cope with this um, type of stuff on a day-to-day -day basis. So I wonder whether um, we should pass round the circle, so to speak. Um, Professor Cindy Weinstein, would you perhaps be a next logical person to introduce yourself? Sure, um, Anna, just can you hear me? Okay, and is this the time where we should talk about our work or is this just a quick intro? It's up to you. I think it'd be love to hear, love to hear a bit of a an, a pricey maybe, and um, I'm sure that Adam and I will have some questions. We always like to hear okay. more and more about what people are doing. Okay, sounds good. Uh, my name is Cindy Weinstein. I'm an English professor at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, and I'm here. Many thanks to Adam for organizing this amazing event. Um, I'm here because I uh, had the opportunity to write a book with Dr. Bruce Miller at UCSF and his area of expertise is frontotemporal dementia, although he can speak and knows about all of the dementias. 
why did I want to write this book? Why did I have to write this book, which is called um, Finding the Right Words, A Story of Literature, Grief, and the Brain. And Anna, how I wish that we had someone like you when my father was dealing with Alzheimer's um, many years ago. Um, he was diagnosed in the 80s. And in the 80s, everything was Alzheimer's. And uh, when I went to UCSF and studied in the Global Brain Health Institute program, which I can talk a little bit more about, I went specifically to learn enough neurology to write a book to honor my father, who Bruce told me actually had early onset Alzheimer's with the logopenic variant. Um, yeah. So really word finding um, was front and center in my mind, especially because of this sort of terrible synchronicity that I talk about in the book that I spent many years chewing on. And that's mm -hmm. the fact that my father was losing language at yeah. the same time as I was becoming an expert in language. Yeah. And that painful simultaneity was really something I needed to try and get my head around. And the book is basically a back and forth between me and Bruce. It focuses on what I eventually learned at UCSF are called clinical presentations. I had several of them just kind of burned into my brain, yeah. whether it was word finding or spatial disorientation or behavior or memory. Yeah. Um, and so I do kind of in literature, they're called close readings. So like I sort of bear down on what those clinical presentations look like um, the grief I experienced yeah. in observing them and how I use literature to understand the world. Yeah. And then Bruce responds in the chapters to um, my descriptions by providing kind of like neurological explanation of what may have been what probably was happening in my dad's brain. Wow. And it was really important for me to write this memoir with someone, which is kind of weird because Bruce never knew my dad. So yeah. like, how do you write, how do you write a memoir about someone you don't know? Yeah. And Bruce was like an amazing listener and empath. He was the doctor we didn't have. Yeah. So like, you know, so um, I wanted Bruce's expertise um, so that the reader wouldn't just sort of have my story about middle-class Jewish girl from New Jersey, gets a PhD, come, becomes an English professor, you know, like, okay, that's interesting. But I wanted someone who could explain the complicated neurology to readers so that when families go to the doctor, it's not mm. the first time that they hear temporal lobe. Mm. or primary progressive mm. aphasia. So there was really a outreach and access component to writing the book, which jived very neatly with the mission of the Global Brain Health Institute. That's fantastic. It I mean, that's so valuable. It, it reminds me of conversations I have almost every week with the clients I work with, because I work both clinically and in research. And um, they, they often have 
it's often very difficult to join up the medical speak with what they're experiencing interactionally and um, in their relationship and in their their emotional responses to what's happening and what there isn't is enough information there, there just right. really isn't people are constantly who i work with are constantly searching um for that kind of information in any you know in in lots of different different formats so thank you i think that would be an, an amazing resource um yeah and thank you for sharing sharing a bit about that catherine do you want to or cat i should say apologies um would you like to introduce yourself sure thank you so much i'm so happy to be here and to meet you all and cindy kind of Similar to your story, I most of my experience as a nurse, I'm a, I'm a nurse and I've been a nurse for several years, uh, had been in pediatrics. And then I experienced um, my father had Lewy body dementia. And sorry, it looks like y'all are frozen. Oh, we, okay. you, are you we can see you. <laughs> okay. Um, so my, my father had Lewy body dementia. And so from that experience, I shifted to um, caring for older adults aging in place and their family and caregivers, um, which was an amazing experience. And, and that experience drove me to go back to school. And I, I got my PhD in nursing from the University of Texas at Austin. And then I started my postdoctoral fellowship at University of Pennsylvania. And I study um, protective factors. So I, I look at spirituality and religion and practices as a coping mechanism for people facing dementia decline in their caregivers um, in the in the hopes future. I'm, I'm looking towards designing interventions that support individual spirituality and, and tailored interventions that can support the coping for people that are that are facing these challenges that that um, you know, I've touched on today. So I can completely see why Adam match made us into this group. <laughs> it, 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 you know, all of what we've talked about, um, it all connects. It's about how people live with this. Mm. Not, you know, it's not about them. It's much more every day. Um, and and that, you know, the 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 relationship, the spirituality, the the being. Um, I can see why you did that. Adam, welcome back. Hi, thank you very much. I've eaten two sandwiches <laughs> in, that, in that time. Thank you, uh, Anna. Did you get a chance to introduce your work, Anna? Did you go I first? did, I did, absolutely. I just talked a little bit about... I joined, I, I put my headphones back on when Cindy was, was there. Cindy was thought, talking. Okay. I kind of just gave a very brief overview. And in fact, what I didn't say is that, um, and I think perhaps this is important to mention, is that I'm particularly interested in, in conversation and um, how we can uh, support people um, not only within um, who are living with uh, these language led dementias, which we call primary progressive aphasia, and which um, Cindy mentioned, um, her father had the, so there's three main types of language led dementia, two are kind of in the frontotemporal dementia category, and one is in the Alzheimer's category, Cindy mentioned that her, her father had the Alzheimer's type, but I, I really look not only at the people with ppa but I, i'm actually just embarking on a bigger study with people with other types of alzheimer's as well so you we've developed a conversational intervention where we work with the person and their partner be that a family member or best friend or adult child and 
we um we work with them together as a couple or a dyad because you know it doesn't just happen to the one person as you both right. just illustrated and we yeah. try and work with those, those those two people to see if we can help people live better and it actually fits really well um with it we've had a paper come out today an open access paper um wow. which is actually uh which is quite exciting but it's kind of the the prequel bit where we were looking um doing some extra work with people with ppa and their family members and we ran lots and lots of focus groups um with a fantastic student um called maria um and we really found that actually that that's often one of the things most often one of the things people are searching for not only people with the diagnoses but their family members they're searching they're searching desperately to be told how to interact often with their family members um so we know this is an intervention that people are searching for in a way so this is anna just to pick up on that so this is talking about recognizing that so much communication isn't speech Indeed. And is that part of it then to be able to, uh, to teaching people to be able to pick up on the other cues, but also perhaps before before somebody's dementia has progressed that, that you can teach this in advance? Yeah, that we can equip them um, and and tune people in, if you will, to be able to um, communicate because it isn't just about words, as you say, it's about it's about gesture and feeling and knowledge and awareness of that person's beliefs and preferences and um, that holistic view and training people to be able to use those strategies. So I, I have a wonderful, I saw a wonderful client recently, and I, I've known many of them who almost enact miming it for even to that extent, where people can mime out their intention, and then actually supporting the people around them to tune into that. Because I think often, people get really focused on oh no you must say it or what does that actually you know what is the specific word that's meant here rather than thinking about the intention mm -hmm. um which i think overlaps with both of what just um, going louder and slower yeah <laughs> and so that i mean you must find yourself like i mean you must be a bit of a counselor sat in the middle of that sometimes i mean that must be an incredibly difficult thing to teach I mean you know to, to equipping people in that way because you've definitely it's very personal you're putting yourself in the middle of that in that situation how do you prepare for that well first, first of all I don't think one can always separate communication and interaction from relationship and emotion so I think yeah. one has to be prepared um but I think that um we're all you know all health professionals are have counseling skills you know we most humans have some counseling skills the skill to listen and hear and um acknowledge how people are, are feeling um and then if there is something i need to do beyond my scope of practice i need to know where to send you know where to get further support and that's i think also part of it is often i think as cindy flagged that people even nowadays people often don't have those connections to other support services um so in i think in the 80s it was probably a bit of a void but even now people say say to me i feel really isolated so i think that's also part of it it's not only having my own tools but knowing what tools are around me and and I might not have been very good at communicating in the first place back when talking uh, or listening wasn't an, an issue. So I, I guess as well. So uh, I mean, maybe 
as a replacement for what they had rather than an, as an enhancing what they didn't do. I'm probably not making much sense. No, no, but you are. Yeah. I know what you mean. So as you say, great, a great grouping. I'm going to come back to Catherine or Kat. Uh, yes. So we've talked a bit today about different non-pharmacological interventions and we talked about mm -hmm. sleep and technology and lighting and getting outside and so much mm -hmm. of what we've looked at today seems to kind of move towards that the modern it is mm -hmm. you know can we put new lighting in place or can we use different things we can use but mm -hmm. i mean yours feels very you know doesn't rely on any of those things this is about people's inner inner mm -hmm. centeredness their their faith mm -hmm. and mindfulness what what's your research shown so far i mean are mm. are there better outcomes for people that had that faith to start with and have that good place to go to? Mm, great question. So I, I've looked at associations with, you know, dementia progressive symptoms, right? So cognitive function, sleep disturbances, neuropsychiatric symptoms. And I found that spirituality and religious practices um, are associated with, and I, I looked at in dementia and in mild cognitive impairment, and they're associated with better cognitive function fewer sleep disturbances and fewer neuropsychiatric symptoms. My next step is to look at longitudinal associations over time to see how those, you know, one might impact the other. Um, but a lot of research has been done on spirituality. Um, more research is being done on mindfulness, meditation, but there hasn't been a lot of research on spiritual interventions in dementia. So that's that's what I'm hoping to really do. And I, I really feel that it it needs to be tailored to the individual, right? So what does that person find meaning in and really yeah, finding we're, we're out what that is? Because we're not talking about an intervention here is to go persuade somebody they should find religion later in life. No, it's not no, that at all. No, this no, is correct. so there must be other ways that you can get what some people get out of going to church or that quiet reflection right, or that kind of faith. Right, there are other ways right. to get that that aren't through imagining some greater being. Right. And as people have certain, you know, um, patterns that they've had over their lifestyle, whether it's been going to religious service every Sunday or, or whatever that might look like as they get older and they may not be able to, to attend anymore. How can we bring those resources to them to help still bring them, you know, those identified sources to bring them you know, coping and, and support and encouragement? What they get out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's it's funny because Kellen, who's not here today, because that counts not just in where you go and the things you did every week, particularly if you move into a nursing home. But Kellen does this great yeah. work about things like people who were used to um, having doing their own cleaning or vacuuming or dusting and polishing. And when you remove those things away, I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's not the same at all, but, you know taking some putting somebody in a room and saying you don't have to clean this anymore we do it and or taking somebody away and saying you don't go to church anymore right, uh, right. because it, you can't go now it has right. the same how do you bring that put that back into somebody's life to keep them on track yeah no that's that's what i'm gonna find out i hope <laughs> <laughs> and is that is that i mean is this how do you recruit to trials like that i mean is this mm -hmm. they, do you find um the i mean and i'm assuming you don't specifically look at a single faith is this looking at different no, faiths as well but most different most systems? of the research that i've seen you know um has been in um you know his you know uh catholic and protestant um faith tradition so 
we really need to expand and look at diverse religions. Um, and the populations that I have found that are in the research and that I found in my own research um, who find religion and spirituality important tend to be older adults, those facing serious illness um, and historically underrepresented uh, populations. So really trying to identify who those people are that might find religion and spirituality important and trying to bring resources to them to support them is really um, what I'm hoping to, to Particularly, I guess, where it was part of your everyday life. You can see how, um, you know, some yeah. religions like Muslim community where, where that's, yeah. you know, it's very much a, a, a part of life um, that yeah. would, would have different results from somebody who mm -hmm. was more passively involved in the church. Yeah, S and caregivers too, also. Caregivers have 40, I think that the, the highest coping strategy they use is prayer. So it's another option. Yeah. Uh, absolutely and as, as well there's been research in the uk looking at communities as as well and how communities come together and can provide mm. support mechanisms and structures both uh and, and that's one of the things you know whether you're a believer in god or not one thing that everybody always picks up on is the fact that churches provide mm. brilliant communities uh, of people that bring bring you together and uh, do address those issues around social isolation or exclusion yeah. and they yeah, were so important during the pandemic mm -hmm. actually i suppose that was your work affected by the pandemic because i'm guessing mm. in the uk churches couldn't they they couldn't run services anymore how yeah I, mean, I wonder if, if you've looked specifically at the impact of that yeah, one of the studies we did was a qualitative study with dementia caregivers asking how the social distancing had impacted their religious and spiritual practices and their coping. And for many of them, the caregivers were able to virtually connect with other groups, whether it's a community group or a service um, doing yoga. But they, we found that they reported the older adults with dementia um, were really cut off from their source of uh, you know usual practice that they engaged in. Um, and some of that was due to um, physical disabilities. They may not, they may have hearing um, issues or, or visual impairment, so they couldn't see a service that was on the television. Um, so really need to, cre to create, you know, use creative innovation um, to connect them to those resources and then figure out ways to, to continue to do that for people that are isolated. And, and like with your Anna work, Anna, and some of the work we looked at, the Enliven project we looked at earlier on today, um, that there's this potential that those places that provide those services, service, you know, the services, these faith-based groups in the church and things can be better at facilitating and enabling people to continue to en engage and and yeah. and also as well, make sure that there's no stigma there. People aren't kind of stopping yeah. to go because they don't want people yeah. to see them like right this. right yeah there's a lot of work to be done there cindy it's a i mean i, I it's an awful i'm not going to ask you the personal question about whether that that's played a part in your life or in your father's but does that do you talk about this in your book about mindfulness and and the potential for some of these more inward reflections to deal with some of those you know agitation or to deal with stress and anxiety that come up does that come up in the book and uh, your through your discovery you've done with GBHI? Yeah, it um it's interesting. Uh, I wrote the preface to the book at the end. And I was just about done with the year of studying neurology when I was sitting in a cafe where I like to get work done and write. And 
I started remembering when my dad died, but more specifically sitting Shiva, which is the Jewish tradition of mourning someone who's mm -hmm. died. And in kind of secular Judaism, you know, you spend like a week and you sit around and eat really unhealthy food and kibitz about wonderful memories of the person who's died. Uh, what I remembered in the cafe in Berkeley was how I could not do it. I didn't realize even though my dad was dying right in front of me, I forgot he was dying because the disease took so long. And so when it came to mourn his death, I, and certainly to tell stories about this wonderful person, I was paralyzed. I gave a eulogy, which I actually, uh, have a copy of in the book it was on yellow paper I had saved it um, and it was actually a blueprint for the book that I was going to write decades later and in the cafe in Berkeley what I the light bulb went on and what I realized was that in studying neurology and reading memoirs and writing this book and becoming close to Bruce um, I was actually sitting Shiva finally um after like 25 years after mm -hmm. my dad died and I sat Shiva the way I would do it which is to say I read I studied um I wrote and it looked very different from the way Jews typically sit Shiva but it was my version and the light bulb moment was oh I asked Bruce to sit Shiva with me and he did. So that's the preface to the book. And I am kind of a heathen, frankly. And so it was uh, quite interesting to me to realize that like very religious Jews who sit Shiva for like a year, that's what mm -hmm. I had done. Mm -hmm. So that's an answer to your question. <laughs> no, it, it absolutely is. Yeah. Uh, it's a Brilliant answer. Thank you very much for yeah. sharing that. The Thanks book you asking. can, of course, we'd encourage everybody who's watching this to go to go buy your wonderful book. Why don't you remind you. everybody what it's called and where they can get it? Okay, that's very nice of you. I actually have a copy right by me. So you can see it's I love the cover. Um, these are neurons on the top, courtesy of Bill Seeley's lab at UCSF. And then this is a picture of me and my dad in New Jersey. And I like this because it captures like science and personhood and all that good stuff. So um, it's uh, published by Johns Hopkins, so you can get it through them. And they're actually having a really good sale right now, um, 40 off. Uh, of course, you could do Amazon. Um, you can order from your independent bookstore. And then the thing is like the images in the book like of the brain and stuff from ucsf labs those are in black and white but on the book website it's weinsteinandmiller.com readers can see the images in color so um there's some really really 
good images, I think, of the different prime, uh, the different aphasias that you were describing, Anna, and where the assault on the brain is happening. All of this is to help readers so that when you go to the doctor, you are familiar with some of the language. It's not the first time you've heard PET mm -hmm. scan or MRI or stuff like that. So I would encourage readers, if you don't want to buy the book, um, just to like go on the book website and look at the figures because they, I think they're really helpful. Fantastic. Thank, Thank you. Because I think I'm going to find that really helpful with all my clients as well. Thanks, Thank Anna. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and, and Anna, I should give you a chance, seeing as you've had a paper published today, and you, is this the one that you struggled, <laughs> you struggled so much to kind of, you were so passionate about making open access? Is this that? Oh, paper? no, that was one I published last year, where I, um, so... Anna, Anna is amazing at fighting tooth and nail to make sure that none of her papers <laughs> are hidden behind paywalls, and mm. she will bend every ear, force every hand she can to make sure that... <laughs> I've, I've been on the end of that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, no, no, no. I, it's important. I mean, you know, we want everybody yeah. to learn from each other when we hide behind these paywalls. Particularly, we were talking about earlier about care home managers can't even get access to papers. Exactly. God, I mean, if they're on a website, open access, they can get them. So tell us about this paper. Where can people read it? What's it called? So uh, the paper that we- Has it got a snappy title? It has actually, it's called, <laughs> it's like going into a chocolate shop blindfolded. And so that was- That's what it's called. Yeah, it was a quote from one of the family members who was saying, the problem with services, particularly speech and language therapy, because that's what we were discussing. But I think this is a universal problem, maybe for many people with dementia, is that people don't know what their care pathway should look like what they can ask for what they could benefit from so they know there's all these potentially good things out there it's kind of a metaphor there's you know you go into a chocolate shop or a sweet shop you know there's lots of lovely things there that you'll enjoy that you'll be you know be give you an a fulfilling experience but you don't know what you know the person was kind of explaining they were blindfolded they didn't know what speech therapy did um and so we use that as a metaphor and i think that's why i've been so emphatic um when cindy you've been talking about your experience because it's such a uh, and that's why i've been struggling i always struggle to make everything open access because it's it's a bit of a bone of contention for me that and that's and actually one of the reasons why i started on my journey into academia which was because there was so little research evidence that clinicians family members and people living with these diagnoses of often of the rarer things like primary progressive aphasia there was just nothing out there that people could get to um and mm -hmm. and it's and then you don't know what you're meant to ask for so mm -hmm. that's that's actually part of my mission one of my next projects alongside this study i'm doing is we're developing a care pathway uh, but I can tell you about that a whole other time. Maybe we need a whole other podcast for that, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear well, about it. And, and and if anything else, you've chosen a title that will definitely get you traction on social yeah. media. I think love that's it. a great title if there's a sneaky <laughs> yeah, way great. of doing that. Kat, Kat, I'd feel bad not giving you a chance. Have you got anything to plug now that we've, we've, we're here? My next guest well, haven't arrived, so we're good. 
<laughs> well, the <laughs> article that I referenced is is published in clinical nursing research. It's called Religion, Spirituality, and Coping During the Pandemic Perspectives of Dementia Caregivers. So that's really good. I'm really excited to see. I mean, Anna's work, Anna is prolific. We kind of see lots of Anna's work all the time in various ways. So I always know whenever Anna's always got something new on the boil. Um, it's great to see with uh, your work as well. I'm interested to see how that plays out with that space because it's it's kind of not really looked at. I think it, people might find that a bit of a sensitive area uh, for different yeah. reasons. And yeah. it, it's important to look at, uh, and particularly if it comes about that people can be facilitated to continue with mm -hmm. this and get the evidence right. they need to support that work. Cindy, yeah. we haven't had a chance to talk about the Global Health Brain, the GBHI, the Global Brain Health Initiative, which we should have done, but they, I'm right in thinking their fellowships either just opened or just closed this time. But what I, I love about GBHIs is, is is that they take out they take in so many different people. You don't have to be a neurologist or a psychiatrist. You can be a, a writer or a you know a, a psychiatrist. You can come from psychologist as long as your passion is there to learn and to spread global brain health awareness and to do that work. There's a place for you there to go study in Dublin or San Francisco. Right. And you're, you must be a great example of that. You must, because there can't have been anybody else like you in that program. You must have been fairly unique. Um, well, my gray hair certainly made me unique. <laughs> um, I had several decades on most people in the cohort. And it was truly an incredible experience. I was in a group with um, neurologists, um, and gerontologists and photographers, dancers. And as you say, Adam, everybody was committed to working on dementia and mm -hmm. outreach and access. And one of the other things I'll just add is how global the, um, the group Definitely is and was. There were people from Latin America, South Africa, um uh cool. just really an extraordinary experience i've posted a link to gbhi in the chat there you can anybody who's interested should go and have a look and um, by all means uh anna if you want to drop back into the youtube chat and post a link to your new paper or to the book please feel free to do so i, I think one of my guests keeps coming and going worried that they're waiting for you to all go so i'm going to let you all go and hope that the second guest turns up so thank you very much <laughs> to uh, my brilliant guest dr anna volkman from university college london dr catherine Britt from university of pennsylvania and professor cindy weinstein from caltech in the usa and the gbhi thank you so much everybody um thank i'll let you, you all go have a great rest of your uh, friday evening you all. Nice bye -bye. Bye -bye. Or friday afternoon <laughs> bye. thanks take care bye-bye